0: Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. You guys are a little bit tired. I I know it. You lost an hour of sleep. And um, and so we need you to wake up because we got to look at the Word of God uh, together. Um, If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I hope that you bring them every week, knowing that uh, that's where our content comes from, I would love for you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 verses 35 through 48. Luke 12, verses 35 through 48. And uh, before we read, before we explain, and before we apply the text to our lives, uh, before we get into this text that the Lord has given us today, which is in Luke chapter 12, um, we're going to first recite our memory verse that we began last week for this month. Every month we've been reciting a, a memory verse together. Pastor Chad introduced this verse uh, to us and um, chose it on a great day uh, that's correlated to what he spoke about last week regarding worth and worship. And uh, and so let's just recite it. We'll just put it on the screen. It's only the second week. Don't expect you guys to to be able to know it by heart quite yet. Except for the uh, the really spiritual people in the room, they can do it. Uh, but let's say it out loud: "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased." Let's say it again: "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth." All right, we know this verse uh, often is. Uh, we we hear it often at Christmas time, right? But I want to explain a couple things regarding this verse uh, before we get into this passage, as I often do with our memory verses. Um, as we think about this verse, the, the multitude of heavenly angels in this context, in Luke chapter 2, are, are, uh, are, are reciting this. Um, they are, they are, there's a multitude of heavenly angels that are reciting this. And the reason that they're reciting this is in light of the gospel. It's in light of the gospel. It's in light of the truth of the gospel, right? The good news that Christ has come to earth, specifically at this point, that Christ has been born and is going to accomplish what God had purposed, to save us. So you can understand this, and then what we can see in this verse, just briefly before we get into our text is that the angels have very good theology. They have perfect doctrine, right, in this. They are, they, are, they are happy about, they're singing about two benefits of the gospel, two main benefits that come from the gospel. That's, that's what these angels are singing about. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're glorying in two main benefits that come from the gospel, And we can see them doing this as they recite this. They have good theology. They have perfect doctrine about the gospel. So what are the two things in this verse that the angels are celebrating? You could probably see them. But the first is that the gospel brings glory to God, right? The gospel brings glory to God. The angels in heaven are rejoicing in light of the gospel. And the first thing that they are are happy about is that this gospel message, Christ coming to earth, brings glory to God. That's the first thing. The 2 Corinthians 4.4 calls this the gospel of the glory of Christ, right? This gospel brings glory to Christ. It is, and, and there's a couple of ways we can talk about glorifying God, right? There's two ways, really. One is to ascribe him glory, okay? And the second is the fact that God is intrinsically glorious and he makes that manifest or visible to us, Okay, so we ascribe him glory, he's worthy, we worship, we say you are worthy, and then the other way that God is glorified is when he, in his intrinsic glory, who he is in his holiness, displays that, like in creation, the creation displays the glory of of God, he's making manifest who he is, and so what's happening here first is that they're ascribing him glory, because in the gospel, he is making his glory manifest, namely through the person of Jesus Christ. So here, the angels are doing two things in light of the gospel, right? That's why they're worshiping, because of the gospel, and they're, and they're, they're first glorifying God. And we ascribe glory to God in the gospel. Why does the gospel make God glorious, look glorious? He already is. But because he's the only one worthy in the gospel, Think about this. Christ is the only one worthy in the message of the gospel. It exalts his name. It makes much of him because of his love, his mercy, his compassion, his power, his sovereignty, his providence is all on display in the gospel. You guys tracking? That's why the gospel makes Jesus glorious, because he's the only one that's worthy in it. He initiates, he chooses, he accomplishes, he softens the hearts, he opens the eyes, he brings about repentance and faith, he saves, he affects salvation, he came up with the plan, he initiated the plan, he completes the plan, and he makes the plan possible to count for us. I mean, that only glorifies one person. Right, So that's why the angels here, when they're singing, they have great theology and they're singing in light of the gospel because of two main things, that the gospel, one, brings glory to God, and then two, we'll see in a minute, brings peace to man. But this is why we have no boast in ourselves in light of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and because of him you are in Christ, who became wisdom from God, Uh, wisdom to, uh, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? In the gospel, there's only one boast. God's done it. Right? So, we ascribe him glory. The gospel causes us to ascribe glory to him. He's the only one worthy. But in the gospel as well, listen, he makes his intrinsic glory manifest. How does he do that? Well, He shows, like, here's what I mean. He shows who he is. He lets us into who he is through the gospel. To say it clearly, he makes himself visible through the gospel. We can see him, understand him, know him, love him, worship him. He makes it visible to us, reveals it to us, evident to us. He does this in a lot of ways through the gospel, but mainly through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? Right? This glorifies God, the gospel. The angels are singing in light of the gospel because it's going to cause man to ascribe him glory and it's gonna reveal his intrinsic glory. 2 Timothy 1, eight through 10 says, God who saved us, this God who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Look at this now, ready? And which now has been manifested. That means seen, visible. You can see it clearly through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Why does the gospel glorify God? Because he shows who he is through the person of Christ. He abolished death, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So we could spend literally eternity talking about the intricacies and the delicacies of how the gospel glorifies God. And that's what the angels are saying. But suffice it to say... That one quality of the gospel is that it glorifies God, and that's why the angels are singing this. There's two aspects that they're singing about. One is the glory of God, but second, the aspect that the gospel brings peace between God and man. So the angels are happy about two things in light of Christ coming to earth, the gospel. One, it glorifies God. Two, it brings peace to man. What an awesome thing. The gospel makes man pleasing in God's sight. And you got to understand that you are not, we are not pleasing in God's sight because of our sin without the gospel, right? Those who are pleasing are the ones who are at peace with God. And those who are at peace with God are the ones who are pleasing to God. And there's only one way that you receive peace with God. It's only possible through God making atonement for a person's sin, right? Initiating the work, he comes himself in order to be the perfect and necessary sacrifice to turn the hearts of sinners to God, giving them faith thereby, by affecting salvation and applying this forgiveness to your life, Right? Romans 5 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God. Not just peace. You don't want just peace unless you got peace with God. You don't have peace unless you got peace with God. Right? And thereby, we are no longer at enmity with God. We're not under his just condemnation, which you would naturally have stayed. In his loving kindness, in his might, he brought about peace. Himself making you pleasing in his sight. You would be under a a forbearance of God until eventual ultimate condemnation in eternity. And he initiates this work to take away that condemnation. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10. In him, in him. We have redemption through, the, through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So as we close this time with the memory verse, these angels have great theology, great doctrine, right? Why? Why? Well, they're worshiping in light of the gospel, Christ has come, and they're worshiping about two things, that it glorifies God, the gospel glorifies God, and secondly, it brings peace between God and man. That's what they're saying here. And we no longer are under the weight of sin or awaiting punishment. So praise God for the gospel. And let us, like the angels, worship God and praise God in light of these two things foundational aspects of the gospel. Let's turn now to Luke 12, and let's read our text. And, um, and uh, not only did the angels sing about Christ coming, but the angels are gonna sing about Christ returning. And that's what we're going to be discussing today and all of its implications, okay? So let's read this. Luke 12, 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the, the male and female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him And at an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him... To whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Talk about a passage, huh? And uh, oftentimes we say, wow, we just we need to preach love and joy. That's true, but you can see very clearly that the Bible is not just um, lighthearted, uh, nor is it really ever lighthearted. I mean, these are the very words of scripture. You, I'm not making them up. You're just reading them, you know? And so the Lord is talking about very serious things. Why? Well, because eternity's real. Eternity's at stake, right? And uh, nothing to play around with. We, we have a life here to glorify God, to know him, to make him known, to live for him. And then uh, just like a, a blip on the radar, and then it's gonna be over. And eternity's where real life starts. You know, So we're, we're thinking about serious things here. There's no, nothing more weighty than what we're doing right now. Can't go out and find something more serious than what we're doing right now with more weight to it. Just won't find it because we're talking about eternal things here. So what we're seeing here in this passage is Jesus training his disciples to be ready for his return. Simply put, training his disciples to be ready for his return That's why I've titled this message, Be Ready for Christ's Return. That's what he's teaching them here. Jesus is teaching true disciples, true disciples, to be ready for his return, and that true disciples will be ready for his return. That's the particular doctrine here. The thesis statement of this whole section can be found in verse 40. Read it. It says, You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the thesis statement of this whole section. And that verse particularly divides two clear sections of this passage. So today we're gonna cover that first section, which is verses 35 through 40, okay? And the point is the same in both sections. Be ready for his return. Be ready for his return. Now, before we move into the division of the matter, which are really Christ's words, which point us to this main point, being ready, so we could divide up this and, uh, and, and explain it and see how this supports or exposes or, or applies this main point of being ready for his return. But before we do that, I really think we need to come to understand this and believe this doctrine of Christ's return, of the second coming of Christ. and. Uh, Here's how this works. When we look at texts, out of these texts arises theology. It's not just texts that explain how we live. It arises, in this text, in every text, arises some theological truth about God, who he is, the scriptures, who they are, heaven, hell, etc. right? So when we're reading a text, when you're reading a text, you should notice that because if, you, we, just, if we just take... Um, if we just take a text and just say, hey, how can we get five steps to applying this to my life? Well, the, the Bible doesn't talk like that, right? Preachers that, that talk like that, that doesn't make any sense because what if the Holy Spirit doesn't want those five steps? What if he wants a different five steps? I just made those steps up on my own. What the Bible does is shape how you believe, shapes how you think. That's why there's overarching big truths with very little, step one, step two, step three, step four. You're not gonna find that in here because it's shaping the way you think, what you believe, and then that will affect how you leave. You might remember five steps for two minutes when you walk out the door, but that's all it will will do. And then you'll realize by step three, how do I get to step four? That doesn't really work perfect because I made it up or someone made it up. But if we, if, if the Bible shapes how we think about, about the bigger truths of God and, and the world and, and eternity, it will shape everything about your life. Right? So that's why if you say sometimes, well, where's the practical steps here? Well, we don't give them because I don't want to, I don't move outside these lines. I color within the, within the pages, right? Just want to color inside the lines. And so all we're going to do, all we do, is we we look at this, and we we understand what it's saying, and then it helps us to figure out how to think about the truths of God, and it'll shape how you live. And by the way, that's why one sermon's not going to change you, right? So when you come in a place and you're like, man, that sermon changed my life, everything about it. Here, you're not going to do that. Why? Because the way we think, the what we believe, these are just going to compound on each other and build. And before you know it, you're Christ-like, right? So this is, this is how, how this works. And so, so this text, in this text arises this doctrine of Christ's return. And we got to spend just a little bit of time on it before we get into the text, probably like half our time, okay, on this. So, the point is, be ready for Christ's return. And the scriptures are clear, all of scripture, right? Um, what we do is, we call the, the uh, uh, analogy of scripture. What, what we do is bring, bring the whole Bible to bear on this text. That's what we're constantly doing. We're not just isolating this, right? We're bringing the whole Bible to bear on this one text. So what does the Bible say about Christ's return? Well, it's just as clear about Christ's return as it is about Christ's first coming. And it's necessary to believe this doctrine. It's just as essential to believe this doctrine as it is to believe in Christ's first coming. The doctrine of the second coming explains the end of history, okay? It explains the end of history. It explains the end of redemptive history. It explains the end of all that God had purposed before anything ever started. Right? It involves Christ's return, it involves the gathering of his saints, it involves a time of tribulation, it involves a thousand year reign in Jerusalem upon the earth, it involves a great white throne of judgment. It involves an incineration of the entire galaxy. It involves his new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. Do you believe it? Because this will affect how you live, and the Bible is clear. For the Christian, it's just important to believe this. It encompasses all these aspects, which really can be summarized in three aspects. The judgment of the wicked, the blessing of the righteous, and the permanent exaltation of the glory of God. That's what summarizes the end things. So there's a final stage in this, which I want to show first, which is what we're getting to. What is our ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope is a new heaven and a new earth where everything will be perfect. This is where the Bible speaks that there will be no crying, no more tears, no more pain anymore. Isaiah 65 says, For behold, I create new heavens, and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Isn't that awesome? Isaiah sixty six twenty two says, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. 2 Peter three thirteen says, but according to his promise, we are awaiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're waiting for, among a lot of other places in Scripture. This is also spoken about in Revelation 21 and 22. You can go there later. So before we get to that final stage, before we get to that final point, Scripture is clear about what will take place. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this doctrine of the second coming. Okay, this doctrine of the second coming is going to be up on the screen. And uh, the sequence of it is clear. Right the sequence of this of these events are clear. So to make it clear there's there's we're going to talk about these stages. The first is Christ's return. The first is Christ's return. Okay? So there's supposed to be a title up there but I'll just tell it to you the doctrine of Christ's second coming. You can kind of title this section as that. And there's a sequence of events. What are the sequence of events for you to know? Okay? You will know that he's gonna come. You gotta know that. You don't know when. This should encourage you, by the way. Do you know this? That the Bible says his second coming should encourage the believer. That's that's what it should do for you, right? It It should cause you to have peace. You should be affected by it, right? So listen, ready? To make this clear, first is Christ's return. This is commonly known as what? You know, the rapture. This is commonly known as the rapture. This is the first event in the sequence or the ordering of the second coming. The first is the rapture. In this stage, Christ will not return to earth. Instead, he will come in the clouds to gather his saints and to meet them in the air. Okay, this is this. Christ will come in bodily form. If you're still on earth, you will see Christ. He's gonna come in bodily form. Acts 111 says this men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven, into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay, so if you're ever wondering about how this all works, I'm giving you this doctrine now that you never have to wonder ever again. Okay? So at this time, the spirits of those who have died in Christ will be reunited with their physical glorified bodies. They will live with Christ in this state forever. And those who are in Christ and still alive on the earth will go to be with the Lord in the air and their physical glorified bodies as well. John 14, three, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. 1 Thessalonians four sixteen through 17, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with who? The Lord. So does it make sense? Currently, those who have died in Christ are with the Lord in spirit. Okay, they're with the Lord in spirit. And those who have died apart from Christ are cast away from God's presence currently as spirit as well. 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18 I read some of this already but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep that means died in Christ for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in, together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Look at that. As you can see at the end of this passage, the return of Christ is an encouragement to the believer. Just as death is an encouragement to the believer. Right? If you die before Christ's return, because it begins your permanent uniting with Christ. That's an encouragement to the Christian. That's how you can tell if you are one. You look forward to that? Or do you want to get every piece of earth first before you get to that? Right, That's why the angels are blind to heaven. You say, how, if they know, how can they, how can they just not want to be in subject to God? Because the angels look at heaven as confinement. Right? They look at it differently. Like you would look at something good. Like maybe before you believed, you, look at church, you looked at the church as something that was just confining and restricting and judging. And, and when you come to know Christ and your eyes are open, you say, man, I... I this is, my, this is where I need to be, right? That's how the angels look at heaven. They see it as restricting. This is something, though, that the, that the believers look forward to. At this point, Christ will take his saints into heaven. They will receive their rewards. They will participate in what's called the marriage banquet of the Lamb, right? Revelation 19, 6 through 10. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him but he said to me you must not do that you know you're going to be tempted to worship each other and worship angels in heaven because you're going to be made so glorious in his sight the angel says here i'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of jesus worship god right that's how glorious you're going to be made But at this point, regarding this doctrine of Christ's second coming, we as Christians believe in two things that I've talked so far under this first stage. The first is the bodily return of Christ and the second is the bodily resurrection of the saints. Right? What's key about this first stage though is that it's signless. It can take place at any moment. As the scripture will make clear, this is coming like a thief in the night. It can take place at any time, right? Right now, when you leave, two hours, tomorrow, tonight while you're asleep, next week, or 50 years, or more. Revelation 16:5. behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. 1 Thessalonians 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there is peace and there is security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, that is for the Christian, for that day to surprise you like a thief, it shouldn't. For you are children of the light, children of the day. You should walk like it's always day, like it's always light, We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep, meaning sleep on our faith as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Don't walk around in the darkness. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for the helmet of salvation, Uh, uh, the helmet of salvation, A helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning physically now, we might live with him. It doesn't matter if he comes at midnight, you're ready. As the scriptures say, no one knows the day or the hour. Look, Mark 13, 32. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Not even Jesus, while he was on earth, knew the day or the hour. He released his divine rights to know when he became fully human. All right, if you ever wonder about that. Of course, in heaven, Jesus knows all things. While on earth, Jesus said this, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So anyone who claims to know when that time is coming, when... Jesus comes, is not telling you the truth, right? At another time, Matthew 24, Jesus said this, but concerning that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but the father only, For as were in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. That's the point of of this. So, first, Christ's return. That's our longest one. Second, there will be the tribulation, time of tribulation. Okay, Tribulation. (laughs) This time of tribulation will last seven years. Okay, so we got the return of Christ, tribulation. This time will last seven years. It's outlined in Revelation 6 through 19. This will be a time of unprecedented judgment. This is the 70th week that Daniel talks about. 70th week is the seven years. This is the time of the seventh seal, which yields the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of all of which are divine judgment divine wrath. In Revelation 6 through 19, the time of tribulation is made clear. So in this time of tribulation, if you're familiar with terminology, you might say pre-trib or post-trib, when is the church gonna be raptured? It's pretty clear that there's no mention of the church in the time of tribulation. So that's where we would say the church is raptured, capital C church, and then the rapture. Third, what we see is what we call the second coming of Christ, the second coming. So we've got the return of Christ, the tribulation, the second coming. The second coming of Christ is to be distinguished from the first event. This is where people get confused. It's to be distinguished from the first event, which is the return of Christ. Although this term right here, is Christ's second coming, and is, is often used in a broader sense to encompass this entire doctrine, Right? That's why this is usually called the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. This is used in a broader sense to encompass this whole doctrine. But this is the time when Christ will return to earth. Not just coming in the clouds to take his his elect. He's coming to the earth. This is the second coming and this will be a time of judgment upon the earth. Christ will not come for his saints this time. He's coming with his saints this time. Okay, okay. He will come with the saints. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw the heaven opened and behold the white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, that's us, white and pure were following him on a white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written: King of King and what? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Zechariah fourteen says this. Then the Lord will go out and first uh, and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split into two from the east to the west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the day of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So the rapture passage, we said, makes no mention of judgment. Well, what I said was the, the, uh, the tribulation makes no mention of the church. The first rapture passage, right? Or the first rapture the stage makes no mention of judgment. It only makes a mention of taking the saints. This is the time of Christ's coming that includes judgment. So we have... The, we have the, the, uh, the return of Christ, the tribulation, second coming of Christ. The, the, the second coming is distinguished from the return because this involves judgment. This first, uh, then the first event. Fourth on this list comes Christ's millennial kingdom. Christ's millennial kingdom. This is when Christ will reign for a 1,000 years upon, upon the earth, right? You guys heard of this? Revelation 20 says this, "'Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, "'holding his hand, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit "'and a great chain. "'And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, "'who is the devil and Satan, "'and he bound him for a thousand years "'and threw him into the pit and shut it "'and sealed it over him "'so that he might not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were ended.'" After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image. So apparently during this time, some will come to believe for the first time. This is where you would see probably the remnant of of Israel even believing at this time. I wouldn't wait for it if I were you. But this is a time when some will believe. And had not received its mark on its foreheads, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So, Christ will rule in Jerusalem. Paradise will be discovered during this time, rediscovered during this time. Deserts, it says, will blossom. The lion will lie down with what, who, what? The lamb. Children will play with Snakes. Some of y'all children already do. <laughs> and creation will be changed, although not fully. Sin will still be have impacted the world. Fifth, we got two more. Fifth is the great white throne of judgment. So we got the return of Christ. We got the tribulation. We got the uh, the second coming. We have Christ's millennial kingdom. We have the great white throne of judgment. This will be the sentencing to the eternal lake of fire, the final sentencing. For all the wicked. Revelation 20 says this, and when the 1000 years are ended, that's pretty clear, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them from battle, their numbers, their number is like the sand of the sea and they are marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded. they surrounded the camp of the saints, the, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them and the devil who had, been, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is the demise of Satan permanently. Now for the saints, they are in heaven And now for those who don't believe, this is the result. Then I saw a great white throne of him who was seated. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So lastly, last step, is the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. So I I think this is great. Not that this is, um, there, could be a, there could be, you could substep this with smaller steps. These are the main six steps. But think about this. After these six steps, there will be a time of permanent rest. Just like how God created the world and on the seventh day he rested, so God will uncreate the world and recreate it. And then on the seventh step is eternal rest. How awesome is that? So this is the new heavens and the new earth where God will uncreate everything and recreate everything. And he'll uncreate it by fervent heat, the Bible says. Second Peter 3, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So you'll be giving, a, I think at this point, a new resurrection body, permanent resurrection body. According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth, which the righteousness dwells. At this time, what I mentioned to you in the very beginning will take place. The universe will be burned up completely, final resurrection bodies, perfect universe, no sin, no pain, no Satan, with our God forever. And we'll live in that state for all of eternity. And this is the plan. And this is the doctrine of the second coming. This is the theology that the whole Bible comes to bear on this. And let me just tell you this, okay? When researching this, you will be amazed at how clear this is in the scripture. And you will be amazed at how much the Bible talks about it. We usually, in our minds subconsciously, disregard this stuff when you read it. It's, it's, it's all over. I mean, I'm giving you, like when I prepare, like I, you might not believe it, but I'm giving you a very small portion of what I've learned over the week, right? And this Bible is full. I mean, I wish I could give you more verses. You say, that's possible? Yeah, it's possible, right? I could show you everything. But listen, all this said This displays the glory of God. This shows his promise keeping. This shows that Christ's words are true. This verifies the Holy Spirit writing the scriptures and that the scriptures are true. This is an encouragement to the believer. Christ and his saints will be vindicated, right? You say, well, my neighbor who makes fun of my faith, vindication one day, right? Satan will be judged, therefore you can have hope. But listen, church, this is, doctrine should change the way that you live. If you got 80 years, if you're lucky, and then you got this, I mean, how are you going to live? I mean, really, unless unless there's a, a, a twinge of insanity. You got 80 years and then this. For the non-believer with the, or with, for the Christian with man-centered theology who loves the world is concerned more about the here and the now than they are to the, for the life to come, who loves this world, right? This is terrifying. That's how you test your faith by fire. But the one who loves Christ more than anything in this world, this is encouraging Because in James 4, it says that this life is like a vapor, right? So therefore, if you're in Christ, this is what you should look forward to. The true believer should live like he or she believes this. You should keep your eyes fixed on Christ. You should be ready for this. Don't lose sight of Christ. To lose sight of this is to lose sight of Christ. It should always be in the back of your mind. This is coming. So... This is what Jesus is telling his disciples to be ready for, okay, in our passage. Primarily, he's telling them to be ready for the signless event, which is the first step, the first stage, okay, Christ's return. So this is what this passage is about. Let's read that now in verse 35 through 40. The rest of it's pretty easy. just gonna take us a few minutes to get through and, and show you. Verse 35 through 40, let's just read it again. Stay in light of what we've learned. And stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake blessed are those servants but know this that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming he would not have left his house to be broken into you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect so let me explain this briefly Jesus is mid sermon Luke 12 1, Luke 13 9, to Luke thirteen nine. sermon right Jesus is training his disciples in a lot of things He's saying, don't be like the Pharisees, disciples. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't enter my kingdom. He's calling, he's saying, don't be spiritual hypocrites. Cleanse the outside, and neglect the inside. He's saying, don't be concerned with man's judgment. Remember all of this? Don't be concerned with man's judgment. Be concerned with God's judgment. He cares for you. Don't deny the work of Christ or the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't be consumed with covetousness or greed. Don't be concerned about that. Be concerned about being rich before God. Don't concern yourself with this life and therefore be anxious about this life because I'll take care of you. Instead, seek first my kingdom, right? Set your heart upon my kingdom. Remember all this? And now, disciples, true disciples who I'm training, that's why later on they say, is this just for us or for everyone? He's training his true disciples right now. And and just, it, it fits perfectly into what he's been saying. Right, true disciples, be ready for my return. That's how you live with your eyes fixed on me and not on the world, right? That's what verse 40 was a thesis. So I'm gonna just divide this into three brief points. The first is gonna be the picture of readiness. He gives us some pictures of what readiness looks like. The second is the blessings of readiness and the third is the endurance of readiness. The endurance that you must have if you're gonna be ready. So let's, let's take these one at, a client, uh, one at a time to make them clear. Number one, the pictures, picture of, of readiness. 35 through 36 and 39 says this, stay dressed for action Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Verse 39, but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. What he's he's doing here is he's saying, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like a servant waiting for his master. Be ready for a thief coming right okay stay with this now produce endurance here in this room so that you can have endurance in your faith right don't give up here first verse 35 the first there's four metaphors here okay four metaphors the first metaphor stay dressed ready for action okay this is one of the pictures it's not up on the screen but it's just in your in your text Stay dressed, verse 35, ready for action. This literally can be translated, let your loins be girded. Let your loins be girded, okay? So that's the translation. During this time, they wore robes. In order to fight in a battle, in order to run, in order to walk, in order to serve, they would gather up the material at the bottom. They would tuck that material where? Right into their belt or their sash, Right? What's interesting is in Exodus chapter 12, before the Exodus, God said this, in this manner you shall eat of the Passover with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Your, your belt fastened, your gurns, girds, uh, your loins girded and you shall eat in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Why? Loins girded because they were ready to leave, right? They're ready to leave Egypt, that's how you got to live. You got to be ready to leave at all times, right? First, Peter talks about girding up your minds for action. The imagery is readiness. Even in Ephesians, when it talks about the belt of truth, one of, that, one of the aspects of that is the belt is there to, to gird the loins so that you can be ready for war. You don't stumble in war, but mainly here, I think if you take this thing as one long you could take this as four separate metaphors, or you could take this as one long one, it's divided up a little bit, so I don't think it's just one long one only but but if you did take this as one piece, one of the main reasons to to gird up your loins is for service. The servants would of a master's house would would tuck their their garment to their belt so they can get on their knees and wash and serve and and fix and Take care and dust and bring food. Speaking of Jesus later in this passage, it says that he will dress himself, same translation. He will gird up his loins and serve you when it comes time. So we got to get through this. We got 10 minutes. That's one. And learn, loins girded, ready to leave. Serving, engaging in warfare, right? It's the first image, first picture. Second one, your lamps burning. What do lamps do? Lamps provide light. You're not living in darkness. You're awake, being watchful, illumination to understand. You're watching for the master to return. Remember the parable of the unprepared servant or the unprepared um, people, the the virgins? They are, this is, the, the idea here is being unprepared spiritually, Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise. When the foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Weddings at this time are extremely unpredictable. You don't know when they're gonna start. You don't know when they're gonna end. Right? Like you just don't. It's when everything's ready. Okay? And uh, at this point now, this, this is what's happening. Right? It's unpredictable. Just like the return of Christ is unpredictable. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. They tried to get ready. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for, your, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since... There will not be enough for us and for you. Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him for the marriage feast and the doors were shut. After the other virgins came saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the answer was, truly I say to you, I do not know you. You can cross-reference that with Matthew passage that you probably know pretty well, right? Lord, Lord, and he'll say, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be prepared spiritually, right? So 2 Peter references that some count the coming of the Lord as slowness. Like this is what 2 Peter says. Some are saying, he's not coming. He's coming slowly. And what he's saying is, don't you know that one day is like a 1,000 years to the Lord and a 1,000 years like one day? Don't think that he's not coming. What is he doing as 2 Peter says? He's giving people time to repent and turn to Christ. So that, because it says in that passage, he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all have eternal life. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to, but the parable is the same thing. Don't let your lamps burn out because of the unpredictability of Christ's return. Here's what Paul says. Besides this, you know the time, the hour that has come for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Verse 36: the images of the servant being ready for the master. This is the third one. These servants, they their loins are girded for service, their lamps are lit. And now they're waiting for the master, right? As I mentioned for the, in the parable, wedding feasts, unpredictable, but they're ready. The master, listen, has put them in charge of everything that is his, and they're ready for the master to return, ready to open the door when he knocks, right? This is the picture here. The master to come home from the wedding feast so that they can open the door at once when he comes and he knocks. This is to be ready for his return. Jump down to verse 38 real quick. I just want to highlight this. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You know what that means? The Roman military had th- four watches, six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to three, three to six. The, the Jews had three watches, not on their wrist, but three watches of the night. Either way, Second or third watch, this is anywhere between 9 to 3 in the morning. What does that mean? A time when you don't expect. A time that's unpredictable. A time when you could be doing things in darkness. A time when you might just be asleep. But the slaves are, are called to be alert, figuratively awake. For us. Servants are ready. And then last but not least, the last picture here is verse 39. Is the master ready for the thief? Now, it's confusing in the wording. That's why the ESV, I don't necessarily love the translation for this. I think in other translations, it says the owner of the home, because it confuses you as if he's talking about still the same master, which was originally Christ. But now he's talking about the master as being as a metaphor for us. So you must also, uh, verse 39, but know this, if the master of the house Had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. That's us. The thief in this image is Christ, right? So he kind of switches it there, which makes it a little bit confusing. But the thieves would dig out mud through, they would dig out the walls, that were made of mud. And if the master of the house, the owner of the house was ready, he wouldn't have left. You get the picture here. Must be ready. So these are the pictures of readiness. That's what it looks like for you to be ready. Okay, And that primarily happens first through you trusting in the gospel of Christ. That's the first step of readiness. You're not ready, no matter what your life looks like, if you have not asked God for the payment of Christ on the cross to count for your sins. Right, That's the first step of readiness. You must receive the gospel and be saved. The second step of readiness then is that you would be about your father's business, that he'd find faith when he comes, right? So what's the, the second thing here? Gotta to just touch on these for a couple minutes, is the blessing of readiness, the blessing of readiness. Verses 37 through 38. Blessed are those servants, there's that word, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second or third watch and he finds them awake, blessed are those servants. The blessing here is the reward for being ready. You're tired, you're weary, ready at all hours, meaning living for Christ. Blessed are your servants, because, or his servants, because they're gonna have a time of rest. Christ is gonna come, and this should take your breath away. At the wedding banquet of the lamb, as we learned about, the bridegroom will serve the bride. He, did you know, he will serve you. He's gonna serve you. He's gonna care for you. You're gonna eat at his table. He's gonna love you. He's gonna nourish you. He's gonna bring you joy. He's gonna bring you rest. And you say, well, that is, just seems preposterous. And that Preposterous, and the, that seems like, uh, even at worst, uh, it seems like heresy. You're thinking about it all wrong. This glorifies him. We are the ones in need of serving. He is the strong one. He doesn't serve us because we're greater than him or that he's subject to us or that he abides by our will. He serves us because we're weak. We're gonna be tired. The refreshing that comes from him. He came not to be served as though he needed anything, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, right? Right? Greater serves the lesser in Jesus's economy. Look at this, Luke twenty-two. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded the greatest. He said, "The king of the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Those in authority over them who are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the less let, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader, the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? What in the world?" It is the one who reclines at the table. But in Christ's economy, I come among you as the one who, what? Serves. We're tired. You didn't deny him. You're weak. You endured hardship, suffering, persecution, right? Be careful even in life. Listen, we're about to be done. Be careful even in life to say that you serve God. It all hangs on what you mean by that. Everything hangs on what you mean by that. You serve God, but really the truth is he serves you to serve him, right? If, if you say I serve God is in a way that he, you, he needs anything, he's the, benef- he's the beneficiary, you're the benefactor. That's not how it works. It glorifies God to say that he serves you in the right way. Because necess- you need it. You're dependent upon him. Right? And he serves you to serve him. He doesn't need anything from you. And then in heaven, he's going to serve us. We're going to enjoy him and worship him and serve him. So, third, lastly, this is going to take endurance. To be ready is going to take endurance. This is just shown from verse 39 and 40. Look at this. The master of the house, he doesn't know when this thief is coming. Don't go to sleep right now or in later. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This takes endurance in your faith. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't go into a life of sin. Don't turn away. This, it takes endurance to continue being ready. Simply put, you must always be ready. You must be waiting. You don't know... If death is coming or if Christ is coming first, it takes endurance. The Bible's filled with all this instruction, right? Matthew 24, 13, but the, uh, the one who endures to the end will be saved. To the end. So church, let me encourage you, receive Christ while it's still called today and you have an opportunity to do so. Live for Christ so that when he comes, he will find you about your father's business, he'll find faith, and you'll prove to be one of his true disciples. Don't count his slowness of coming as that he's not coming. He's giving you time to repent, right? Stay ready because he's coming. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and There's a lot that we gotta discuss in just a short amount of time. I just pray that you would take this and make us believe it, and that we would remember it, and that we would be changed by it for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.